I feel like I am connected to the community and the school isn't just that place on the hill that's shining, it's really connected. And Hazen's becoming more and more connected where the community's dreams for us are similar to our dreams for us too. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. America's school children are in trouble. This week, it was announced that math and reading performance of 13-year-olds in the U.S. hit the lowest level in decades. This compounds the widely reported crisis in student mental health. What can be done to stop this downward slide? Around the country and in a handful of Vermont communities, community schools are succeeding against the odds at improving student outcomes and family well-being. In 2021, Vermont passed the Community Schools Act, which provided over a million dollars in grants for community school pilot projects in five locations, including Hazen Union School, Virgen's Union Elementary School, White River Valley Middle School in Bethel, the Cabot School, and North Country Supervisory Union. So what exactly are community schools? It's a strategy that encourages deep partnerships among schools, students, families, and communities. Schools become hubs of learning, engagement, and democracy. Community schools address the needs of the whole child. If a student is struggling because they're hungry or sleeping in a car, they need more than tutoring to succeed. So many community schools include partnerships with local health centers, legal clinics, housing assistants, and other services that help the student by helping his or her family. For the past two years, I've been researching community schools for a book that I co-authored with the founders of this movement. The book is The Community Schools Revolution, Building Partnerships, Transforming Lives, Advancing Democracy, You can read it or download it for free at communityschoolsrevolution.org. I had the opportunity to interview leaders of community schools around the country to hear about their remarkable impact. I learned about a community school in Cincinnati where the high school graduation rate rose from 30% to over 90%. In one New York City community school, math proficiency increased more than sevenfold and English proficiency quadrupled. That helps explain why New York City has opened more than 400 community schools in the last dozen years. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we talk about community schools in Vermont and elsewhere with three founders of the community school movement and three Vermont educators. We'll start with Dr. Jason DiGiulio, principal of Hazen Union School in Hardwick, which is one of Vermont's pilot community schools. I asked Dr. DiGiulio to describe the community that Hazen Union School serves. Uh, yeah, so Hazen Union School is a small Northeast Kingdom rural community school. We serve um, primarily the communities of Hardwick, Greensboro, and Woodbury, although our supervisory union serves much more than that. And so Hazen, as one of the high schools in the supervisory union, ends up serving a much broader area. So we were probably built 53 years ago to serve maybe 600 students, but we have about 300 now. And so we have a little bit of space in the building. And um, like most Vermont schools, Hazen was looking at a declining student population in the future. You know, so according to when I first joined the school about four years ago, we were looking at maybe having between 250 and 275 students now, as opposed to sort of 300 before that, 400 before that, and so on. Hardwick is uh, where we're located in Hardwick, Vermont, and it's sort of described as the gateway to the Northeast Kingdom. So those people not familiar with the geography of Vermont, the Northeast Kingdom was called that because it is an incredibly rural, picturesque, mountainous, hilly, glorious, beautiful, geographically disparate and desperate place. It's wonderful and awful all at the same time, depending on the circumstances. You can find amazing vistas everywhere you go, but also find um, the challenges of living here require transportation and intense coordination of resources, and the internet penetration in our area is not so great. So Hazen is looking at a student population that hovers right around 300 students, despite the fact that we should be a little bit lower, according to uh, projections and estimates. And so give um, give a little sort of a go ahead. uh, Yeah. Can you give a little socioeconomic kind of 
profile of the district, the portion of students on free and reduced lunch, things like that? Sure. Um, so about half of our students are on free and reduced lunch of some form, although everyone receives free lunch right now uh, that's included in Vermont. And so it's sometimes it's a little hard to tell. But if we look at the numbers around that, it looks about 50. I want to say 54 percent, but I could be off slightly on that. Um, Hazen's demography is much like most Northeast Kingdom schools in that we have a substantive population that are um, at or below the poverty line. We have some that are just barely making it, and we have a few uh, professional families that are firmly in the middle class, although most of our families struggle to be there and stay there. And, um, you know, a couple of paychecks from real trouble is what a lot of people are in, including and that's complicated by the high cost of housing. There's a housing crisis in our area. And so that's impacted even our abilities to uh, hire faculty and find them places to live that are affordable. Um, let's see. Well, yeah, so let's let's jump ahead. right into the community school at Hazen Union. Um, sure. When did it begin and what does it look and feel like to people in the building? So it started when uh, the community schools law was passed in Vermont, a grant program was established and Hazen won one of those projects. And it was to establish Hazen as a community resource and hub and expand opportunities for our students. So as you probably know, the, the community schools in Vermont is organized around five pillars. I know nationally there's sort of four, but Hazen or Vermont added uh, the fifth one. So we use integrated student supports expanded and enriched learning opportunities, active family and community engagement, collaborative leadership and practices, and a safe, inclusive, and equitable learning environment. So those are the five pillars that we organize our projects around here. And so what we were looking at at Hazen was um, transitions between sixth and seventh grade are particularly difficult for us. Eighth and ninth grade, you know, passing from middle to high school is difficult, especially since we have some middle schoolers in the building transitioning internally, but we have lots of students coming in from outside also. And then that transition to adulthood seemed particularly difficult. And so there were three sort of gates or points where students would often fall down. So one of our major project goals was to improve um, the passing rate or the engagement rate of those transitional, especially ninth grade students. Um, we are also looking at how to expand um, our learning environments and make them a little more inclusive and a little, a whole lot more engaging for students in this area. Um, they were reporting having difficulty connecting the learning to what their aspirations, dreams, or goals were. And so the community school is there. Um, and we're trying to include our families more. It's almost like, you know, after this many years of school shootings and things we've had in the national consciousness schools have almost put up walls and become fortresses up on a hill and separate from their communities and so we literally occupy a hill here and our community is beyond some bushes way out there and it's probably the largest and most vibrant community resource that exists in this area um, and it would be shameful to shut the door at three o'clock or on weekends or over the summer and not have this space be utilized we also simultaneously have a really remarkably engaged and vibrant sports community here. And so our families and alumni are really, really involved with us. Hmm. And so how do we leverage the lessons learned there in building a community, sharing of resources and giving our students lots of opportunities and bring it into the academic house a bit and expand that. So in broad strokes, that's sort of what we're trying to do is break down the walls of school, let the community in, um, send the students out, have learning happening all over the place and recognizing that learning doesn't just happen sitting in a chair in a classroom. Like Vermont knows that already, but this is putting it into real practice and grounded in the community. So we've done a lot of work with community mentors, with community partners coalition, um, expanding who, our- Who are some of the partners, the community partners of this? Um, Danny, do you want to jump in there? Because she works with them really directly and is our conduit to keep the finger on it. And Thank Danny, you. if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, I'm Danny Smith. I'm the current community school coordinator at Hazen Union High School. I've been here since July and will be transitioning this July. <laughs> um, so some of our most vibrant partners, I would say, are the Center for an Agricultural Economy, also based in Hardwick. There's a really rich farming community. Um, a lot of our families are dairy farmers or have been farmers in previous generations. And so 
that organization has been a really huge resource to us. We have an in-house place-based educator who's employed by the Central for Center for an Agricultural Economy named Reeve Basom. Um, she comes and teaches a class called Recipe for Human Connection, where the kids cook meals for the community. They learn how to be in community together. They use local food. It's a really wonderful, like all-encompassing experience of what it means to be a Hardwick kid. They go down to um, the United Church of Christ every third Thursday of the month and put on a meal for our community members to come. And we've started to use that space to have some community-based conversations. So that's been huge. Um, some of our community mentors include people from the town manager's office, from former uh, school board members, parents, I'm trying to think of some of the others. Um, well, can you say a little bit about how you integrate some of the health partners um, in the school work? Yeah, so Elsa Eggpin would be the person to talk to about that. She really holds all of our health equity work, um, but she's been, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. DeGiulio, but she's been contracted through the Hardwick Community Health Partners. So they're covering her transition into becoming an RN. Well, let me get uh, yeah, Jason yeah, DeGiulio to explain the, the relationship with the health yeah. partners. Yeah, hi. So um, a major focus of our project was students were coming to school sort of not ready to learn yet. There was a whole population of them that were just not ready to be here because of health or other concerns. So Elsa Ingpen, <clears throat> who is a doctor of nursing already, um, has the ability in her independent practice, if she was employed by herself, to you know, diagnose, prescribe, do all those sorts of things. But as a school nurse or a director of student nursing, that's not within her scope of practice. So um, we have telehealth equipment. And we have an agreement with some local health partnerships that she is able now to phase in that work with students where she can actually do diagnostic work with students. She can telehealth with the professionals or the students in other buildings and um, the insurance and all those, you know, sort of everyday grindy sort of uh, friction points that can come up can be handled by the community partner health service with also representing them inside the school. So we're going to be piloting that with students next year. And if all goes well, then we can expand it to their families. And if that goes well, it'll be open to the community after that. So we're in the walk phase and we'll hope to be running soon. Well, let me um, uh, finish by asking you, um, uh, Jason, what do you, I know you're only two years or less than two years into your pilot program. So anecdotally, what difference has it made in the school that you see? to have a community school be the the new part of your school? Right. Well, we have some <clears throat> deliverables, right? But what really stands out to me is the fact that, like the universe told us we were supposed to be under 300 students, like 250 or 275, and we're not. Like anecdotally, and I mean, school year just ended Friday, so we're still analyzing a lot of data and trying to figure this all out. But the fact that we have students coming from outside of our district to come here and experience the flexibility and the personalization and the, the kind of school where place matters and an individual's aspirations and goals matter, <clears throat> that's something that is not exactly new to Hazen, but the focus on it is new and it seems to be attracting students. So we're holding strong at about 300 students and it looks to be the same for next year, which is not what I'm hearing from the schools around us. So if we can keep that up, it'll help. You know, and another is um, we have community partners really invested in coming back to school. Like they, we put out a call and they showed up and they, you know, it's, they seem to have said, we always wanted to be here. We just didn't know how, you know, it was hard to access school. We didn't understand how you needed us. And so they're coming back. Like we had another anecdote is we had, um, you know, we have some culture things, you know, how the parent culture, there's, there's some misogyny there, some racism there, some difficulty there. And that, of course, expresses itself in the school system as well. And we have community partners stepping up to help us mentor kids and tackle that as well. So I feel like I am connected to the community and the school isn't just that place on the hill that's shining. It's really connected. And Hazen's becoming more and more connected where the community's dreams for us are similar to our dreams for us, too. But, Danny, you might have some different things you want to talk about there. Yeah, I think for so much of the work that I've been doing, it's been trying to find those unseen or unthought about connections that used to exist pre-COVID or have not existed ever in the history of the school. 
And so I feel like placing myself in the community as much as I possibly can really led to some great connections and led to programming or events or just ideas coming up that wouldn't have had we all been working in our little silos um, within our different areas of work. So it's just, it's been a really great, I think, revitalization of some community connectedness that wasn't happening since COVID um, had come through. So. And uh, Jason, do you feel like there's anything measurable? You've mentioned an increase in enrollment. Uh, anything else at this point, this early stage, you can say is actually quantifiable? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of quantifiable things, uh, uh, but this might get into like school lingo a bit. And some, so internally, we wanted to see a decrease in the failure rate amongst ninth graders, right? And it looks like that's the case. Uh, we wanted to see uh, more facility in our school teams with using data to make decisions. And we can see that. We wanted to see an increase in access to flexible learning. And we, our goal was about 10% a year. So maybe 20 more Hazen students a year could get flexible learning, maybe 30. And the flexible learning team uh, with Danny's help and community partners help like way blew that out of the water. Almost 50% of Hazen students were experiencing some form of flexibility this year. None of us expected that, but that, you know, the consequence there is we have to revisit our systems and say, can we handle that, right? That much flexibility so quickly. And flexible um, learning, you're talking about, you know, dual enrollment with college classes, things like that. And I'm talking dual enrollment. I'm talking um, early college. I'm talking place and community-based learning, work-based learning, online learning, project-based learning. Um, June term is another thing that's a major accomplishment for us. We had experimented with it before COVID. And then when COVID came, the culture of it sort of evaporated for a while. And so that's a period in the school year, the last two to three weeks where um, students and faculty propose high interest real world projects and then go out and do them for those two weeks. And so they're, we're really assessing those real world or 21st century skills and applied academics. And the recipe for human connection that Ms. Smith talked about a few minutes ago, that actually came out of a J-term class that entered our standard curriculum afterward. And so there's lots of measurables, but again, school just ended Friday. So we're still crunching the numbers and seeing where we stand. But those are the ones I can talk about right now. Well, Dr. Jason DiGiulio and Danny Smith uh, from Hazen Union School, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to turn it over now to some national experts and founders in the community school movement. I'm going to start with Jane Quinn. She served as the Vice President for Community Schools at Children's Aid, where she directed the National Center for Community Schools. Jane, I know you spent um, much of your life on the road, going school to school and setting up and implementing community school practices. And um, so maybe you could just give us a basic primer for people who've never heard this uh, term, community school. Um, we've heard what it looks like in one school in Vermont, but what are the basic principles of a community school? This is really my favorite definition of a community school. I heard this from an urban superintendent, Patricia Harvey, many years ago when she said, you know, in our district in St. Paul, Minnesota, we have come to think of community schools as a strategy for organizing school and community resources around student success. And I said, bingo, that's it. Simple, straight, clear. It's results oriented. It's flexible. And it is about the way we organize the resources based on a good thorough needs and asset assessment of the community. So there are some practices and principles in community schools that make it work. And the first one is, is doing a, a thorough needs and asset assessment on the strengths of the community involving as many community resources as possible, but doing it in a strategic way that is responding to what we know about each individual school. Um, so that's a definition that I think people have uh, embraced around the country. And uh, it certainly is working in a lot of, in all the places that I visited. You mentioned how many 
places I visited during my 18 years as director of the National Center. Um, I have, I would say, been in hundreds of community schools across the country, and I've seen the variation as well as the underlying, the enactment of the underlying principles and, um, you know, the underlying standards of practice that we've developed over the last 25 years or so. Talk about the impact of community schools and the ones that really kind of rise to the top for you as being emblematic of the difference they make. Right, right. And I mean, this is not just Jane's um, ideas because thankfully we have a body of very rigorous research that has come out of the work of our colleagues at the Learning Policy Institute and the National Education Policy Center. In 2017, two policy organizations did a national study uh, looking at all of the evaluations of community schools that they were able to find around the country. And that study really, I think, helped the federal government as well as a lot of district leaders decide that this is a strategy that actually works. So one of the first and one of the um, leading indicators that I think a lot of districts have worked on is reducing chronic absence. And that means when students are missing 10% or more of the school year, people have targeted chronic absence because we know that chronic absence reduces achievement levels of individual students, reduces achievement levels across the board because students fall behind and then need to catch up. Um, and the when, when schools target chronic absence, they have found dramatic increases in attendance. And the reason that the partners are so important in this work is that we know that chronic absence often is related to two big things. One is um, unmet health needs, and the other is family instability for lots of reasons. Family mobility, for example, when families move a lot, it upsets children's education. So reductions in chronic absence have been really um, dramatic in community schools. Another outcome is student engagement. Because community schools are involved in the community and are getting students more involved in their communities. We've seen dramatic increases in student engagement and that is not trivial. We have known for 30 years that student connectedness to school is the protective factor against all of the major risk factors. So building students' positive connection to school in as many ways as we can through expanded learning opportunities, through addressing social and emotional needs, all of those things work toward increasing students' positive feelings about their school, their sense of belonging to their school, and their sense of authentic engagement. Let me um, turn to Marty Blank. Uh, Marty was the founding director of the Coalition for Community Schools, serving from its inception in 1997 through 2017. Uh, Marty, the book we uh, worked on together is titled The Community Schools Revolution. What is so revolutionary about community schools? It's an old idea. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here with uh, with Jason and Danny and to listen to the good work they're doing locally. And in some ways, they're, they're, Jason's emphasis on trying to open up the school and build bridges into the community is part of what's revolutionary about community schools. That's an old idea, some might say, right? As our friend Steny Hori used to say, when we built schools on the prairie, we voted in them, we danced in them, uh, and we gambled in them. Uh, because they were the central institution in the community. And over the years, that has drifted away. And so what, what we've been trying to do in an era when people are saying academics, 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 is to return to that idea that schools are the center of a community. One might even suggest that this is a 
traditional, if not relatively conservative idea, um, because it really reflects uh, a core tradition in America. So we're trying to return to this idea and push back against the notion that schools are only about academic success. Because as Jane's comment about chronic absence suggests, uh, there are so many other forces that drive children, uh, that, that challenge those circumstances of children. The second point I would make is they are revolutionary around learning. We heard Jason talk about, uh, and Danny, the Center for Academic, uh, for uh, Agricultural Economy. Uh, we heard him talk about getting kids out into the community, place-based learning. Those are all parts of what we want to do in a community school. In many schools today, kids are simply going through a more uh, rigid uh, curriculum that doesn't give them the opportunity to look at the world around them. Kids want to see, and I think this is an issue that Jason referenced, kids want to see the connection between their learning and the world in which they live and their futures as well. So we want to get young people engaged in what is the history of the, of the uh, Northeast Kingdom? You know, what is the story behind the agriculture that's going on here? How can we contribute civically to be sure we are um, contributing to the, the growth of our community? These are concepts that push back against a traditional view of the way in which people are looking at public schools. One phrase that I think captures a bit of what we've been talking about is that schools are places, community schools are places where everyone belongs where they have a relationship with them, with the school and with one another, whether you are an educator, a family, a student, or a community partner, where everyone belongs, everyone works together. And I like the word thrives. Uh, I think American families understand the word thrive because it goes beyond whether your kid has gotten an A or a B in class and whether they're doing well in all the dimensions of their lives. So, um, is, it a, is it a revolution in some sense that this is something absolutely brand new? Well, some people would say they've, we, we're all, always rediscovering things that were good for our, for our communities and our young people. And so that's what we're doing is bringing back those aspects of a community school. And it's one more point, because uh, I, I looked, you know, uh, in preparation for this, I looked at the number uh, at the local government arena in Vermont. And if not mistaken, there are more than in a state with a, a, a million or so people, maybe fewer. There are 600,000. How many? <laughs> 600,000. 600,000. There are 230 units of local government. Yes. There are still town meetings. You know, I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, where there are town meetings. So the idea that a school is at the heart of a community is central to community life. That fits Vermont like a glove. But as Jason suggested, over the years, partners have said, oh, the school wants to be behind the moat. The community school strategy puts down the bridges, opens the doors, and invites people in in an intentional way, in a strategic way, so we get better results for our kids and for our communities. I'm turning now to Lisa Villarreal. She is a second-generation Mexican-American and lifelong educator. She served as an original member, co-chair, and chair of the Coalition for Community Schools for two decades. Lisa, talk about the how a community school makes a difference around issues of equity. Who has access to education and what kind of education they get? When we consider the notion of community schools as an equity strategy, I like to think about the uh, two, two students arriving to school. Uh, one student arrives and perhaps has had the assistance of you know, parents and, and siblings to wake up, have breakfast, have access to um, everything that you need to get ready for school. Maybe there's a lunch packed or a nice backpack packed and there's guaranteed transportation to school, maybe in a car, a nice bus, adequate clothing, um, all the things that, that we think of that we need to do to have ourselves pulled together um, to have the basic conditions for learning met. Then I want uh, us to think about a second student who may or may not have woken up in the same place uh, that where they were living a week ago. 
and may or may not have a consistent parent or guardian living with them, maybe raised by uh, older siblings because the parents have already gone off to, um, to work, maybe working two or three jobs. There may or may not be food in the home to start the day. There may or may not be reliable transportation. And if you look outside and it's raining or sleeting or snowing, there may not even be a jacket, in which case you have to make the hard decision once again. Do I go to school? Because even without a jacket, it's snowing, it's hailing, and it's ripped or it's, it's too small. So right off the bat, the conditions for learning, the conditions for getting out the door may not even be there. Um, our school systems in the United States presume that when kids arrive, having the necessary conditions for learning met, that the schools can take it from there with high quality teaching and learning and opportunities and materials and supplies. But when we look at, at what's happening in the United States with what's been happening for decades, quite frankly, kids are not arriving with the necessary conditions for learning. So what a, what a school, what a community school does is as Jane was saying, really takes a look at those necessary conditions for learning and pulls together the, the partners, the most appropriate partners, public and private, to actually begin to level the playing field to make sure that every child, that every youth that enters the school has a fair shot at a good education and a good life. So very often those equity strategies including include um, uh, breakfast programs, lunch programs. You'll, you'll, you'll hear about the after-school diner um, in the, it, when you read the, the Albuquerque story. Um, there will be health services, mental health services, perhaps drug and alcohol counseling services, education for the parents to level the playing field again, uh, transportation, um, opportunities to have health services, maybe even um, a dental chair, but beyond, you know, beyond the necessary supports and services that all kids need to, as Marty was saying, not just to survive, but to thrive, we're talking about the intentional integration and blending of supports and services throughout the school day so that teachers understand that the opportunities are available for the kids, that the providers understand the plight of the teachers and that there is a sense of interdependence where it's not just us and them. It's not just what we used to call wraparound. It's not just a converted classroom down at the end of the hallway, but it's really part and parcel of what's happening at the school. You know, we would be naive to say that, uh, or we would, be, we would be naive to not include the discussion of racial equity in all of this. Because when we, when we look at not only the roots of our country, but the way education has evolved, over the last 50 years, over the last 100 years, we continue to see the school, the haves and the have nots in schools, and they're consistently falling down along racial lines. Um, and so community schools also challenge themselves to take a look at equity across the board, supports and services, opportunities, race, poverty, class, gender, all of the different isms, all of the different us and thems that the country seems to continue to, to perpetuate um, our opportunities for community schools to consider what's working, what's not working, and how we can pull these partnerships together for our school, for our kids. There is, you know, in the political discourse today, a, you know, a line of criticism of schools that says, you know, we just need to get back to the ABCs. Of course, you know, test scores and, and have been the kind of gold standards by which schools are measured. How do community schools, do they take a different tack? I mean, how do you answer those criticisms that kids who are coming out of school are coming out not prepared in the basics? I will tell you, you know, as a former teacher, counselor, and administrator, when you talk to teachers and when you talk to principals about their achievement gap. And when you talk and you ask them the question why, they will readily talk about the same conditions that I just mentioned. They will say, well, you know, the kids are showing up, they're not prepared. They're hungry. They're dirty. They didn't have a good night's sleep. They didn't have a regular place to stay. They didn't, didn't even have their backpack. And when you ask, when you ask teachers and principals, 
if the basic needs of kids are, are accounted for, if the basic needs for kids are provided, we're talking about food, clothing, shelter, medical, dental, mental health services, what difference would it make? What difference would it make if the, if the kids felt that they so belonged to the school that it was a place that they wanted to be, the place that they wanted to return to in the evening uh, for special opportunities, a place that they wanted to return to on the weekends for special opportunities. You know, if you ask, if you ask principals, would you rather have, what would you rather have, high test scores or a student population that comes every day that's happy to be at school, is thriving, healthy, and there's this, uh, there's sort of this esprit de corps about being in the school. And principals will tell you to a person that they would trade uh, peace on campus, they would treat satisfaction on campus, they would treat a reduction in uh, school violence, and that they would, uh, they would trade um, a reduction in chronic absence. They would, they would, they would trade all of that. You are speaking to us from the Bay Area, and the city of Oakland has one of the more dramatic, I won't call it an experiment, we're a dozen years into their transition to um, a full community school district where every single school in the city, and there are many, is a community school. Why? What difference has that made for Oakland, and what led them to take this approach? You know, the Oakland Community School probably, or the Oakland Community School approach really has its roots going back to the civil rights movement, where the, um, uh, where the, the, Oakland, the first Oakland Community School was established actually in conjunction with the Black Panther Party. Oakland has a rich and long history of community involvement in schools and the participation um, of community-based organizations in really addressing the necessary conditions for learning across the board. And it's that history uh, that the community has continued to remind the Oakland Unified School District about. And um, around 2010, um, the new superintendent, who was Tony Smith, and you made a across the board decision that Oakland Unified would be a full service community school district, meaning that every child would have an opportunity to arrive and uh, partake of all of the necessary conditions for learning that we've been talking about. This, is not, uh, this has not been an easy um, task for Oakland Unified. We've had several superintendents and we've had a variety of teacher st strikes and community issues across the board. But what's been fascinating to see is that the community has come out and demanded community school supports and services and opportunities at, uh, at the school boards. They've demanded them at the school and they're not taking no for an answer. They realize that in order to have real equity and um, you know, the Merriam-Webster uh, defines equity as justice according to natural law or natural right, freedom from bias and freedom from favoritism. And the parents and community of Oakland have turned out to say, this is what we want for all of our schools. Oakland will tell you community schools yesterday, community schools today, and community schools tomorrow. Well, Marty, let me uh, turn back to you. Um, this is not the only strategy for addressing issues in education. Many people have heard about charter schools, and there's often some confusion. Uh, what is the difference between charter schools and community schools? So charter schools can be community schools, David. We're talking about, as Jane talked about earlier, schools that see themselves as embedded in a community and that try to create all the kinds of opportunities that young people need to thrive. Uh, so community schools, as we mostly define them, however, are, if you will, regular public schools. Public schools that choose to engage in deep partnership with their families and with the variety of community agencies and partners that uh, Jason and Danny referred to earlier, whether it's learning partners or health partners or partners in any other arena. 
Charter schools are, are privately run, nonprofit. They're public, but only in the narrow sense that they're publicly funded. Uh, they, they do have to meet standards and they do have to meet testing requirements, but they tend to be isolated from their communities um, at, in general. That is not to suggest that there are not community schools that are that charters can, that, are, that are community schools. Ira Harkavy, one of our colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, works with those kinds of charter schools. There are some charter schools that were chartered to serve their neighborhoods, to generate greater flexibility in the way they operate. What we have done as a, as a movement is to be very clear on what we are for. We don't wanna get into conflict with the charter movement or other groups. We want to promote the idea that the school, this powerful institution that is really at the heart of nurturing the greatness, the best parts of America, it, it must return to that role if we are indeed going to help all of our young people succeed. I wanna add one more point, if I may, David, to what Lisa was saying, because in, it, in the union negotiations in Oakland, there was discussion about whether the school district would agree to, to work on housing issues. And of course the school district, that's not their mandate, but they did agree that the school system would publicly would agree in the contract to work with other organizations in the community. Why? Well, Jason made the point. He talked about people not having decent places to live. And he talked about the difficulty of getting teachers there. So a community school, the voice of the school needs to be pre is present in those dialogues and discussions. Because when the principal shows up and says, I can't find places for my teachers, people to live. They can't afford to be here. Then people might just listen more. So at the heart of our work in some ways is listening to the voice of the community and making sure that we, that school districts and partners all respond. That was Marty Blank, a founder of the Community Schools Movement and a co-author of the new book, The Community Schools Revolution. We turn now to Matthew Deploy, principal of Virgin's Union Elementary School, one of Vermont's pilot community schools. I asked Principal Deploy to describe his school and the community that it serves. So Virgen's Union Elementary School serves um, one city and three towns. So we serve the city of Virgen's, which is in the middle of our um, school district, Addison Northwest School District. Uh, and we serve um, the three outlying towns of Panton, Addison, and Waltham. We have about um, 300 kids uh, that attend our school, kindergarten through sixth grade. Um, and the Agency of Education put out a request for proposals um, in August a couple of years ago with a pretty short timeline. So we, um, I had heard about it um, from some colleagues at the AOE uh, that this might be coming out. So we were a little bit aware of it. Um, and so when it came out, uh, I met with uh, our superintendent, Sheila Soul, to think about how we could leverage um, some of the programming and ideas that we had um, and put them into practice uh, with, with this kind of opportunity. And the request for proposals was to become or to add a community school to what you do? Correct. Yeah. So we were, we already uh, operated a 21C program, which is another kind of federal after school program. So that, uh, the process was pretty similar to, to that and dovetailed with a lot of the work that we had uh, desired to do aspirationally. And really, uh, we were able to align uh, some of our work um, to work more closely with our community partners to offer more robust programming um, and more ubiquitous programming um, and tie it into our continuous improvement plan. What does it mean to be a community school at Virgen's Elementary? Um, I think to be a community school at Virgin's Elementary means that we are a school for the community, not just in the community. Um, so we like to think of, you know, what does our aspirational community look like? What does it sound like and what does it do? So how do we incorporate uh, health and wellness, for example, in both a social emotional way as well as a physical way? So a lot of the one of the big components is is 
uh, more adult programming and more tie-ins with the Virgin's Recreation Department. Um, and so our physical education teacher, Robin Newton, who is the Vermont State Teacher of the Year uh, for this year, um, is sits on our the City Recreation Committee. Um, and so we do a lot of collaboration among and between uh, the, the City of Virgin's and uh, Virgin's Union Elementary School. Um, Veterans Memorial Park is literally adjacent to our school. So um, if you look at a map of our school, like a Google map or whatever, um, you can see that there are, it looks like we have a skate park, tennis court, um, a big basketball court and a pool, but that's actually city land uh, and city property. It was at one point in time ours, but we, we have a working agreement through our board and through the city uh, so that we can use that for school related purposes. Um, yeah. Are there community partners who are now more engaged in the school than they were previously? For sure. Uh, I mean, we have a community schools coalition uh, that is composed of, uh, and our, our community schools coordinator, who is Lynn Rappaport, uh, who used to be on the Virgin's Rec Committee, uh, with myself and Robin uh, and other folks. Um, is is a coordinator of that, and and we work pretty closely with a number of organizations in town, including Virgin's Rec, uh, the Virgin's Boys and Girls Club, the Bixby Library, the Counseling Services of Addison County, uh, Kid Power Vermont, uh, the Virgin's Partnership, uh, and other kind of local organizations in order to collaborate around both programming and um, how to better serve our community in general. What do you feel is you know, anecdotally, because it's only been a few years, what difference has it made in the school? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we we recognize that uh, although we serve all of many of the children in our community, our community doesn't necessarily, uh, our, the taxpayers in our community don't necessarily have children in our community. So we really wanted to open up our school um, to folks who wouldn't necessarily have kids in our school. So we offer a number of different recreational opportunities as well as mentoring programs. Um, where people can either volunteer or participate in those kind of recreational opportunities to really get people into the building and and using the the building as a facility so that we can uh, help folks understand that like we are here for a community good. Uh, we've also done some things around food and food insecurity uh, with the local food shelf um, and communicated with uh, Hope and other organizations in, the Addis in Addison County generally um, to really think about how to to best serve our our families in need. Are there quantifiable things that have changed around the school? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, there's the mentoring program is something that previously like hasn't existed in a while, especially in a uh, prior to COVID. So I've been here, I'll be starting my um, my seventh year soon, um, and really thinking about you know how do we serve those students. Uh, who are traditionally underserved but don't necessarily have significant um, needs that rise to the top, but we recognize might need a community mentor. Um, so we've increased that community mentorship program. We've been more deliberate around uh, making sure there's no holes in programming. Uh, so we offered uh, Camp Commodore. We offered a couple of because we also are a child care provider. Um, and we recognize that when we are not open as a child care provider, that that's an impediment uh, to, to working families for sure. So we've tried to offer some programming uh, to fill those gaps and coordinated with the city uh, and other organizations around that. Um, we've done a lot of work around anti-bias and anti-racist work within the school. And so we're able to collaborate around um, that with regard to like sending folks to conferences, providing some materials um, and doing some more uh, thinking around how to increase our uh, knowledge of our own uh, biases and, and how to promote a more uh, anti-racist um, school. What would be your advice to other educators, uh, be they in Vermont or elsewhere, about pursuing this strategy and the difference it's made in your school? I mean, I, I think it's important to think big about what school is and what community is um, and really think about, you know, who are the underserved uh, populations in your school? Because I think uh, in many respects, um, uh, we need to think most closely around the students who are uh, who have potential to perhaps fall through the, the cracks. You know, it's it's not, you know, we're pretty cognizant of the um, uh, and pretty aware of students with um, 
a wide range of needs, but I don't think we're necessarily aware of like the lack of resources that folks have available to them outside. We're we're right here in the valley, um, and we're in between uh, Middlebury and Burlington. So there's a uh, access to things like medical care and dentistry seem ubiquitous, but they're not necessarily they're they're not necessarily as ubiquitous as you might think, um, especially with you know limited uh, providers in the area and fewer and fewer. Um, people taking new patients, and yet we still uh, continue to, to have kids move in. So really think about like, where are where are the needs? Who Who is your community? Uh, how well do you know your community? And, and how, how much uh, a part of the school, or how much part of the community is your school and vice versa? Because uh, when we work in concert, uh, we work collaboratively and we, we work separately. Uh, we sometimes work at odds with each other to the same goals, so. Is there one student or family that comes to mind that has benefited that you've seen a change in their trajectory? Uh, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Uh, there's a student involved in our, in our mentoring program. Uh, and um, this student is, you know, uh, uh, they do fine. You know what I mean? They come to school every day. They, they're well, uh, they're well uh, loved at home, uh, but they don't, particularly seem happy all the time at school. Uh, you know, their 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 friend group is uh, not uh, as big as some other kids. And I think since the mentoring program has started, this student has, has started to feel a greater sense of belonging in our school, uh, a, a better sense of pride in terms of like who they are at school. Um, and I think they think of school as more uh, of an allyship uh, rather than uh uh, a function of what they need to do based on their age. So uh, I think of I think of that student often. Hmm. Okay. Well, Matthew Dubois, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was Matthew Dubois, principal of Virgin's Union Elementary School, one of Vermont's pilot community schools. Earlier on today's program, we heard from Hazen Union School principal Dr. Jason DiGiulio and community school coordinator Danny Smith and National Community School leaders Jane Quinn, Lisa Villarreal, and Marty Blank.